Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. In this episode, we are going to discuss the Born Supremacy. And it's Born Week Born at week. Raiders of Lost podcast. Last episode was a breakdown of the franchise in general, as well as the Born Identity. This episode, like Eddie said, is the Born Supremacy. The following episode will be the Born Ultimatum. So make sure to check out all three episodes back to 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 back. It's like a TNT marathon. It's, it's going to be a podcast. A, it's like an ABC <laughs> Family's Harry Potter marathon of Raiders move episodes. Now, the Born Supremacy is the second film in the trilogy directed by Paul Greengrass. It's the first film in the franchise that he has made. He made three total. He did uh, the second, third, and then the fifth of the franchise. Written by Tony Gilroy, who also helped write the first film. IMDb, The Born Supremacy, is a 7.7. That is the lowest of the of the trilogy. And then Rotten Tomatoes has it at an 82% critic score, kind of low, and then 90% audience score on an increased budget from $60 mil to $75 million for the first film to the second film. This movie grossed $290 million worldwide. Another smash hit, huge return on investments. Now, The Born Supremacy follows Jason Bourne, who is living in India, when he is framed by a Russian agent for the theft of millions of dollars from the CIA and a double homicide. The agent begins to pursue Jason Bourne, intending to assassinate him. But while Bourne and his girlfriend Marie are on the run, she is shot instead of him. Vowing for revenge, Bourne sets out on a revenge tour <laughs> to prove his innocence and bring the culprits to justice. But he has to also evade CIA head Pamela Landy, who is now convinced that he is guilty. Now, there are a lot of new elements to this film that really work. Uh, first of all, Joan Allen is a great new addition to the cast, and she'll be in Ultimatum as well. But Paul Greengrass, as director, he brought an immediacy to the filmmaking, a grittiness, a rawness to it, especially with the lighting and cinematography. I mean, the first shot we get of Jason in the opening scene is him waking up from that nightmare, and him and Marie, they have this beach cottage and I love, there's just this great cinematography and lighting of he's writing at the journal on uh, at his desk, and there's just a lamp on, and then we have this beautiful dawn blue light uh, outside, overcast above the clouds. Remind me of beach. Heat when we were yeah. talking about Heat. Just really, just like, that's, it wasn't that, you don't see that kind of filmmaking in Hollywood movies very often, and it's just really beautiful filmmaking, just filming it at the particular moment where the dawn is just bringing light into the onto the earth and then we just have that one yellow lamp and the contrast of yellow with blue with the cinematography is just really fantastic but just one light that's all you need and so Paul Greengrass brought that to these films that he's made of making it less polished of making the lighting more um, authentic to what practical sets would be like what these locations rooms and streets would be like there's also a great green hue to this film in contrast with the blue hue of Ultimatum. That's like the color palette for both films. Ultimately, like the desaturated blue is kind of like the tone of Ultimatum. You see a lot of greens and a lot of yellows in this film. And it, it feels very stark in contrast to tone and color to the first film. So I think Paul Greengrass was like saying, this is we're, we're changing things up a little bit and I'm approaching it in a different way. He's uh, He was a former documentarian filmmaker, so... He loves handheld. He doesn't do it just to make it shaky. He is bringing realism to such a big extravagant story, which I really like. It makes it uh, more relatable for us to watch a character with the handheld uh, cinematography. Sometimes if it's done right, it's just really fantastic. and One of my favorite styles of filmmaking. And Paul Greengrass really put that into this film. Producer Frank Marshall selected Paul Greengrass after he'd seen Greengrass's film Bloody Sunday, which came out in 2002. He thought that his documentary filmmaking background would actually bring a unique quality to the movie and the filmmaking process, which he definitely did. It's a lot grittier, handheld cameras like you're talking about. And also, Paul Greengrass made sure to avoid computer graphics at all costs, and all the stunts shown in the movie were achieved practically, so getting as much in-camera Practical filmmaking is so essential to this movie. And again, like last episode, we were talking about what are the necessary ingredients to the recipe of a great Jason Bourne movie. Also, John Powell returning to make maybe the best soundtrack in the entire franchise with the Bourne Supremacy. It's just some good tracks. It's for, between oh this one God. and Ultimatum yeah. for me. But I think like Moscow, Wind Up, Bim Bam Smash, 
the Berlin Foot Chase. These oh, are yeah. great musical tracks and musical scores to accommodate these incredible sequences, whether it's a foot chase, a car chase, action, a fight scene. Terrific music. The editing is a little cleaner, I think, than the first film in, the, in Supremacy. And we brought up last episode that there's an average of a cut every 1.9 seconds in this movie. So it's a really quickly edited film. Lots of locations, lots of shots, lots of setups, but super effective edit. And what I love about the music is that John Powell really hammered home great percussion in this film. (laughs) But using different kinds of drums and different styles of percussion from cultures around the world to really... Uh, embrace the cultures of the where the sequence were, sequences were shot. Like Hans Zimmer does the same thing whenever he's composing a film set in certain cultures or societies. He likes to embrace the instruments and style of music of those areas, and John Powell did that a lot in this film. And so I love the percussive uh, elements of the score. Really terrific combined with the electronics that he used in a lot of the action sequences. So he was really honing his own in, in terms of his vision of the Bourne scores. And then for me, Ultimatum is my favorite because just Waterloo is a gr- an unbelievable track. And then Tangiers is just a really outstanding um, assets and targets. And it's just there's so much to that, to that score that I really love. But I, I love the cinematography of this film. It's really dynamic. And it works whether it's character moments or action sequences. I I really enjoy the shaky handheld camera work in the fight sequences of this film and the second film. I think Greengrass has a really real strength to it. I know a lot of people aren't happy with it. I saw I read through lots of reviews of that was like the number one complaint for the Bourne movies, especially this one and the second one of people complaining about Paul Greengrass's filming style. But that's the way he likes to shoot. And for films like this, I think it really does work. This movie is so important to Jason Bourne as a character as well. Last episode with Bourne Identity, we were breaking down this amnesiac, the, the amnesia-ridden super assassin government weapon who doesn't know who he is anymore, has this these crazy skills, uh, safety deposit box full of money and cash, and what that person would be like, what that journey is like of discovering who you are. And for the opening of this film, he's he's run off with Marie. They're living in Goya, India. She gets taken out by a Russian agent who's sent by a CEO, Russian oil oligarch, Carol. to cover up his tracks yeah. with the government, the CIA, and the money they embezzled. And then Jason Bourne's basically on a combination of a revenge tour to not uh, not only avenge Marie, and this is the angriest he's ever been in all three movies. This movie, he is a force of nature. He is willing to almost kill anyone. I mean, he he's looking at Pamela Landy with a sniper rifle. I'm sure he's, in his heart, he's like, I'm going to kill whoever is responsible for the death of Marie. But obviously he doesn't. But he's coming to terms, learning more about his past. His memories are are kicking in. He keeps remembering things from Berlin, this job he was on in Berlin, this hit that we learned was supposed to be an assassination off the books for Treadstone, for Conklin specifically, because Conklin was using Jason Bourne on the side, which was basically this was his 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 graduation, this assignment, off the books Treadstone assignment to take out Nesky, which turned into a murder-suicide that Jason Bourne, as an effective assassin, framed his wife for. So coming to terms and remembering this original mission of his in Berlin putting the pieces of that together with everything that's happening in Berlin present day in the film, as well as by the third act of the film, the end of the movie, Jason Bourne coming to terms with who he was as a killer of innocent people, not just an assassin, and confessing this to the little girl whose life was completely ruined by that murder-suicide that Jason Bourne committed by orders of Conklin, and what he's done to her life as well as a very poignant and powerful ending where he's not asking for forgiveness. He's just confessing and accepting who he was and not wanting to be that person anymore. I think that's the best scene of the franchise when he apologizes to Nesky's daughter. I think that was just so powerful and it's a great character moment because what really makes all of these the first three movies special is... Yes, they are incredible action films. Yes, they are globe-trotting adventures. Yes, Matt Damon just rocks the shit out of the role. I thought he was more of a Streisand, but man, he's rocking the shit in this. <laughs> Sick reference, bro. Your references are out of control. For your virgin, virgin, if you don't know. <laughs> Anthony's life story. Just, <laughs> here we go. I shouldn't even say Every it. Every time. I really shouldn't say it. <laughs> but the films are great character pieces and excellent writing. And like we said in the previous episode... 
uh, they really tap into the the corrupt nature of government agencies, of corporations, especially the corporate uh, connection to the government in this film in particular, in a really terrific way. Um, excellent theme for the film as a backdrop setting. So it's not just mindless action. It, there's, they're really saying something about the world at large with films like this. But it really does come down to great writing and great character work. And But Matt Damon came into his own really as the character. And he he was a superstar. Born Supremacy came out. Everybody was like, oh my god, a newborn movie. Like He was on top of the world. He had Oceans was killing. He was already coming off so much acclaim as a, just a, a dramatic actor. So this really solidified his status as a superstar, the supremacy being a success. Because it's one thing to have a successful movie like Identity. But for the sequel to do as to do well, it's a it's difficult to pull it off. And the born for the born franchise, the first three films were really dynamite at the box office. And the story is really complex. And Jason Bourne has a lot of people gunning for him because we have Pan Landy, who had this operation where she was getting the transfer of files for money to get those Nesky files, which is thwarted by Kirill, who was hired by And I'm sorry, Yuri. just to stop, Nesky knew where who, who embezzled the $30 million yes, from exactly. the CIA. So, but Pam was trying to get that information to find out what was going on. Kirill assassinates both the men. Carl Urban. Oh so my, good I love in this movie. Him. Yeah. And he's working for Yuri, that Russian CEO of the oil company, the oligarch. And they frame Jason Bourne for the murders by planting that fingerprint. So now the CIA is... And Pamela Landy are looking for Jason Bourne because he's the suspect because obviously it had to be him. He left his fingerprint there. He's been a rogue agent from the government agency who she discovers once she gets level five clearance and starts looking into Treadstone. So she's looking into Jason Bourne as well as trying to look into Treadstone and discover what Treadstone is as well as Operation Blackbriar is going underway with Abbott in control of that. And Abbott is working with Yuri. They're the ones who embezzled the money together. They're trying to cover their tracks by framing Jason Bourne for the assassination of those two guys at the exchange in the beginning of the film that Kirill did. And then they're going after, and then the Russian oligarch, he's going after Jason Bourne as well with Kirill to cover their tracks even more. So lots of people are, the CIA and the Russian Yuri are coming after Jason Bourne, while Pamela Landy and the CIA, she's investigating Treadstone and also Jason Bourne. And their plan runs a mess because Jason gets away. <laughs> you can't get Jason Bourne that easy. So it's, it's actually, there's a lot going on in this movie. Now, yeah, who, it's a good plan though, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's a good plan to frame Jason, but then assassinate him. And, and they thought that they achieved it really quickly. Yeah, so now exactly who is Yuri Gretkov? He doesn't have a ton of screen time in this movie, but he's the one in control of Kirill. And Kirill, he's just a special agent in, in Russia who is just working black ops for this guy for money. Now, Yuri is a, a Russian oil empire CEO. In the late 90s, Yuri Gretkov conspired with Ward Abbott to steal $20 million from an undisclosed CIA black fund, presumably keeping his half while Gretkov used his share to establish an oligarchy by buying shares from major oil pipelines. Russian politician Vladimir Nesky was an outspoken opponent of the oil privatization in post-Soviet Russia. As Nesky was in the way and had the potential to jeopardize Gretkov's business, Abbott ordered his subordinate Alexander Conklin to have Nesky killed. Conklin chooses Jason Bourne to eliminate Nesky. Afterwards, Conklin selects Bourne into the newly CIA-formed Operation Treadstone. So that assassination that Jason Bourne did off the books that he's having these memories of, of when was I in Berlin? You know my file, Nikki. When was I in Berlin? You've never been in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> that assassination that was supposed to be of Nesky turned into a murder-suicide. That was because Nesky had all this information and was trying to end the privatization of post-Soviet Russia. I so love how it's tied to identity so seamlessly. Exactly, and a memory loss yeah. and amnesia. Now, Conklin, like I said, chose Bourne to do that. Knowing that fellow CIA Deputy Director Pamela Landy and her team were attempting to buy off the Nesky files, documents about the theft of the $20 million seven years earlier, Gretkov hired Kirill, a Russian Secret Service assassin, to kill the two operatives who were retrieving the files that proved Gretkov and Abbott stole the money. The Russian magnate later tried to have Kirill blame and kill Jason Bourne so the trail would go cold. However, Bourne managed to survive, and Gretkov was arrested by the end of the film by Landy following Spoilers. Kirill's death at the hands of Bourne. <laughs> it was never clearly established how any connection between Abbott, Kirill, and Gretkov was made, though, in the film. I love... I love Carl Urban in this role. He only has a couple of lines, but he's his presence is just really felt. And I, I'm not sure, I, obviously, we don't speak Russian, but his accent seems pretty legit. 
when I was a kid, I thought he was a Russian actor. That's yeah, that, he's solid. He I looks was, Russian. Yeah, even he's from New Zealand. Yeah, so I was I believed it as a kid watching him, and and I, I even though he did, like there's one of the archetypes of a. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jason Bourne movie is the the antagonist assassin is just very quiet. Also, you know, they never hot say as anything. fuck. <laughs> you, have hot to be a, you have to be a hot guy, not speak any lines. <laughs> And just hold a gun. Jim's like Clive Owen, huh? Edgar Ramirez, Car- uh. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar Isaac, Car- oh. <laughs> oh yeah, Oscars in, in the uh, yeah, legacy. They blow him up in legacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, just quick off topic. In Force Awakens, when they approached him for Force Awakens, Kathleen Kennedy actually produced Legacy, Born Legacy, and so they approached him for his role as. Um, I can't remember fuck his, his name. Poe. Poe. How Paul could da- you forget his name? The most iconic trilogy of all time. <laughs> Paul Dameron. His his role was initially just to be that opening scene, and they, then he was going to get shot down or something. So he's going to die in the opening, and he rejected their offer because he had just done it for them in Born Legacy. He's like, I don't want to do that. Set up the story and then die again. And so then they they were like, you know what? Let's get him in the film entirely. So they rewrote Poe Dameron. For being a, a lead character, but it was originally going to be like a Born Legacy kind of setup for the film of The Force Awakens, and we're not, obviously not going to talk about Born Legacy, but I, I love the opening of this film with Jason and Marie. They seem to be living a, a pretty decent life um, in hiding. You can you can imagine obviously this isn't the first place they've been, but it seems to be a place they've been for many months now. And they seem to have built, been built, building a life together. They have memories. I love how they have like a, a bunch of photos of them from various parts of the world, from uh, just them being together for years now. And it seems like they have established a real partnership as a couple. And I love the subtleness and quietness of the opening. It's you would expect it to open with like a, an action sequence or something, but it's quite the opposite. It's very quiet and it, it's just all character, which I love. And him running on the beach, running on the in beach, those cargo shorts. <laughs> And it's <laughs> <laughs> what a shooby Jason Bourne is. <laughs> shooby. And it is a beautiful life that they've tried to create out of being on the run in Goya, India right now. And Marie is such a great partner because she's trying to help Jason put the pieces of his life back together. You know, he has these memories and dreams in there. He doesn't know which are which, and she's trying to make sure that he's staying consistent with journaling and, and writing down everything you can remember. Because it's gonna it's gonna come back <laughs> making turkey. Did you finger paint it? Hand, hand turkeys. <laughs> if you're not from America, we make, when you're in elementary school, you put paint all over your hand and you make turkeys out of it for Thanksgiving. For Thanksgiving yeah. <laughs> I doubt they do it anywhere else. Yeah, that's why I had to explain yeah. it. <laughs> so she's trying to help him put his life back together and she's they've she's sacrificed her entire life to be here with him at this point. And they seem really happy. And this is like the only time we see Jason Bourne smile ever is when he's with Marie. And besides the photo in this movie, he I don't think he smiles. Smile. I don't never. think he smiles in this movie at all. No. Just the photo, which I love that he keeps because he almost takes. Lets yeah. It go. So do you think he burned it? Or do you think? Did he, do you think? Because they cut away when he's holding it. Do you think he eventually throws it in the fire? Or do you think he holds on to? Oh it? no, he pulls it out multiple times in, in Supremacy and then Ultimatum. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you even that. watch the movie? I literally just watched it. <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> I do, I'm the guy who does his job. Who are you? I get uh, I get all choked up when he looks at the photo. It's tough, yeah. though, because this is a life, and I think Abbott says it best, where he says, you killed Marie the second you got in her car. She was doomed. She was going to die, which you could say was probably accurate, inevitable, even though Jason Bourne says he didn't believe that to be true. He, didn't, he thought they could live a life away from everything. Of course, that this was going to happen. It was probably inevitable. It's really tragic. 
when Marie dies because the bullet was meant for Jason Bourne. When Kirill came, he tracked them down, and obviously we're talking about last episode these instincts. This kind of Jason Bourne. Oh, Spidey yeah, said. yeah. So, so why? How did Jason recognize that he was an agent so quick? Jason Bourne has yeah. the Spidey sense. Yes. You know, he's yes. his hitman Spidey sense. He does it in every movie. He knows when something's wrong. Yeah. He even says the car the guy was driving, the the outfit, the wardrobe. He knows something's off. Yeah, because. It, he can't. He doesn't say specifically, but it's it's probably because that's what he would drive if he was in that person's shoes. That's the outfit he would wear. That's exactly how he would approach the town. I think that he saw Kirill. He's like, that's what I would be wearing if I was on a hit job in here. And so he saw the perfect the perfect cover. It was too perfect. And yes, honking got Kirill's attention. Yeah. But movie plot, we need a chase to ensue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it as quickly as possible. Yes. But so I love how he he recognizes him, and that's why it's it's because that's what Jason would have been dressed as. It's like what they're trained to dress as to yeah. blend into a certain environment. Jason bore a spice sense. Yeah. All right. Exactly. So that that's what it is. It's so tragic because, again, Marie takes the bullet that was meant for him because Kirill is a very effective agent as well. He's not a Treadstone agent, but he's great at what he does. On the same level, he takes out that entire CIA operation while they're watching it, and then he gets in and gets out, and they don't even know what happened. And he snipes the driver of the Jeep while they're trying to get away, get over that bridge from so far away, Intending it to be Jason Bourne driving the car because Jason Bourne was driving the car, although they swapped seats and Jason went to the glove box to get a gun and was going to jump out of the car and have Marie drive to meet them at a safe house that they had prepared somewhere. Unfortunately, Carol, obviously thinking Jason Bourne's driving, shoots the driver, kills Marie off the bridge in the water. Horribly tragic scene underwater. Also beautiful at the same time. More green. Of, yeah. of letting Marie go after her death and trying to breathe air into her lungs, thinking that it, there's just maybe a chance she's still alive, but then just kissing her one last time and letting her float away. It's, it's so sad. Yeah, it's really tragic. And I love the detail of Carol's chase where once they go off-road, his his Hyundai can't do that. Is that a Hyundai? <laughs> it's Chris Rock. <laughs> Chris Rock reference. Um, But he it also shows that when an agent goes on a job, they know the area from their research and they don't show they don't have to show it but like he knows like okay they're driving that direction there's the bridge that over there i'm going to run to it'll give me a perfect position to snipe them out like you can tell they he gets to this environment and he already knew the entire layout of this town and even probably the surrounding areas well as well he knew all the road systems he know and he he mapped out the entire place in his mind already. So I love the attention to detail where he knows he can go to that bridge to get an advantage point on the car. And he thinks that he killed Jason Bourne, but little does he know, third person omniscient, that Jason Bourne's about to start his revenge tour. And while this is happening, we have a great political and governmental back and forth between Pam Landy and Abbott here where Pam is starting to get, to get clearance levels where she's going into files that Abbott does not want opened again. Specifically, Treadstone, what the program was, who ran it, what it was meant to be. And Abbott is doing his best the entire film to just give her enough information without revealing the truth about everything. He does tell her it's a, it's a hit program. That's what it was. That's what it is. That's what we do. We did what we did in the past. He even admits to uh, calling the assassination hit, assassination hit on Conklin. Exactly. He's like, I had to do it. He's like, I've served my country. And Bourne, we learn, we learn, we're learning so much about Treadstone and about Bourne through Pam's investigation, not just of Bourne himself, but also of Treadstone and what it is. Bourne was the number one agent there. He was their best tool. He was also the first person in the program. Abbott's set to retire next year. He's like, I'm not, I'm not getting involved with this. You, you should. You should not be doing this at all. He's also trying to warn her, like, you don't know you're what you're going, into. You're going after Jason Bourne. Like, you have no idea the shitstorm you're about to open up. You have, you've never tracked anyone like this before, and it's going to bring so much up that you don't want to investigate. But she has to because she's a good person. She's a loyal patriot, and she's trying to do the best for her country and for the agency. And I love Jason Bourne's absolute confidence to just walk into an airport knowing that he's going to get picked up and flagged in Naples yeah, in looking Naples. right in the security yeah. cam uh, it's just the, the he cuz he knows he's going to get out of whatever situation he gets put into in this case the interrogation room and he waits until um that CIA operative their their asset in Naples comes to interview him. He ain't no asset. Yeah. <laughs> no 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 not a secret assassin but he's he's an they call him an asset. Mo yeah. Monahan goes, get let us know what assets we have, whatever assets we have in Naples. So Some guy. He's like, yeah. <laughs> He's just a guy. 
But I love that Jason knows that he knows exactly he knows he's gonna be put into a room. You know he's gonna he's gonna get red flagged, but that doesn't deter him because he knows he can get out of the situation. And just being Jason Bourne, we get another terrific, just quick action sequence showing that even compared to other trained people, they are not even the same ballpark as him in terms of martial arts and fighting skills. And again, MacGyvering his way out of a situation by locking their door, by putting the, the what do you call it? Like File filing cabinet? Cab, filing I would cabinet. exactly said it's a MacGyver move. But no, it's a great way to lock people in a room. He didn't like make a bomb. Well, he does MacGyver some, he does some MacGyvering in this one. He does. He MacGyver does. would be like if he took like an elastic band and a paper clip. He choked them out. <laughs> That's MacGyvering. But this is also where we're getting Nikki's back in the story where Pam Landy has basically recruited her against her will to help them with their investigation of Bourne. And they're trying to figure out in the control room, like what, mis- why would he make this mistake? What What's he doing? doing did he mess up he's looking right in that camera like why, why is he in naples why now and nikki's like what does it mean nikki's like he, he, they don't make mistakes this is all on purpose he's probably sending you a message he knows exactly he wants what you to doing. know they yeah. don't make mistakes jason Bourne doesn't make mistakes he's doing this all on purpose i love that it's man so jason cool. Bourne's so cool <laughs> <laughs> but and jason's so intelligent and He's doing this all because he's trying to put himself on the radar and also trying to get intel from them as well because he steals the SIM card and copies it from the the asset that he takes out. In <laughs> he's Naples. an asset. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he's it, not an assassin. He's still all right. He's an asset. He, he, does, asset. He, it, does, it, does he do things for the CIA? Sure. So he's an asset. So he, all right, the asset, the great asset. <laughs> He's take, he copies the SIM card, and now he's able to listen to the phone calls. Flip phones. Find out who Pan Landy is, who's running the investigation. He still doesn't know fully what Treadstone is. He's trying to find a little more about Treadstone as well. And this is where he's doing a cross-recon on the recon that they're doing on him. He does it multiple times. He uses different technology to to track them in, the fil- in this film and in Ultimatum. So he's kind of flipping the table. My, how the turntables. <laughs> I also love how these movies are pre-smartphones. Yes, it's terrific. Yeah, but also, and then he learns that they think that he killed, that he was the uh, the assassin who went who uh, killed the people involved in that deal. He's like, I wasn't. There. He's like, I wasn't there. I was, I was in fucking India. <laughs> <laughs> I was working on the beach, <laughs> Berlin. What have I been in Berlin? So now he knows he's being set up for something. But this mission in Berlin, it's it re- it reminds him of his original mission in Berlin with Conklin because two people killed, double assassination, like. When was I in Berlin? Why Why are they talking about Berlin, Germany? When have I been in Berlin? All these memories are cropping back, but that's not what they're talking about because this happened years ago with Conklin. It was my first mission. And so he's slowly remembering that hit that he that Conklin had him do on Nesky and his wife. And also, we talked about last episode, one of the best fight sequences in the trilogy is against that French agent, Jarda. Jarda. I think he's German. At the, uh, is he? I don't know, actually. He could. I can't tell from the accent. <laughs> no, no, he's a French actor, French. isn't he? He might be, yeah. Yeah, Jarda, where he's hunting he's down- He's the villain in X, Triple X, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just he's... popped in my head. <laughs> Wasn't he almost in a huge movie role that he had? A... He couldn't do? Because he's the he's the villain in Mission Impossible 2. Yes. He was, he was uh, originally tapped to play Wolverine. That's what it is. Yeah. Holy crap, hold on, what's his name? Let me see, Mission Impossible 2. Real quick, real quick. His name is. Where is he? I'm on IMDb right now. Don't don't give me it. Uh, Dougery Scott. Doug, 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 yeah, Dougery Scott. So Dougery Scott was the villain of Mission Impossible Two. Is and... this him? Hold on. It's, I think. I think let me let me go again. It seems like the same guy. They look really they, similar. It's got to be him. Let's see. He might have just been born putting... supremacy. IMDb cast list. Martin Chokas. Zjarda. Man, they look alike. They look a lot alike. Yeah, they look a lot alike. So he's in Eon Flux, The Equalizer, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. You'd all recognize him if you saw him. They actually do look a lot alike. Yeah, they have, they have very similar features. So he's also actually from New Zealand. Okay, gotcha. Oh, he's um he's in Lord of the Rings. He plays uh, Galadriel's Ooh. wife. I mean, husband. <laughs> Galadriel's husband. Uh, what's his name? Oh, he's in a couple of sh- yeah. He's got a couple of lines in the first one. Yeah, yes. I know. I know what you're talking about. Can't remember his name. Sorry, sorry, guys. Unsubscribe. Uh, Unsubscribe. Anyways, back to him. Great fight in this apartment because Jason's tracking down who is. This is the last Treadstone agent from the program. 
goes into his apartment, does the and uh, the guy goes the code does the code. The guy's an agent. He obviously knows someone's in his apartment, and he keyed in a distress call. Obviously, he didn't know that. He thought Jason Bourne was here to kill him. Jason was just here for information. Great. Did you call it in? What'd you do? Did you call it in? <laughs> I thought we you were here to kill me. I, but we, I have a car in the back. We should. Great fight scene. <laughs> he gets the knife. Knife versus the magazine. The magazine was something that the team came up with on set where what could we use as an interesting weapon that would be believable? The rolled up magazine actually works really well. They even tested it out on set and it really will leave some bruises and hurt. I remember being a kid testing it out and I was like, yeah, that works. <laughs> so there's actually some confusion. There's This is like the one plot hole in all the Bourne movies is like, how did Bourne know where this guy lived? And how does he know, if he doesn't remember anything, how does he know Jarda? Because he says you should have he says a line. He says you should have, you still should have moved, even yeah. though even though he doesn't know who Jarda is. There's actually deleted content about Jason Bourne and Jarda. So when Bourne visits the assassin Jarda in Germany, it's never made clear how Jason knew where he was or who he was. There is one section of dialogue exchange, like I said, word in the ether was you lost your memory, and Jason replies, "You still should have moved," giving the indication of remembrance. However, it's not a remembrance because according to the original script. Jarda is actually the driver in the Berlin flashbacks with Conklin. So the the person, the man driving that car oh. is Jarda. So he recognizes Jarda from his memory. And also there's deleted dialogue in their exchange in this scene between Jason and Jarda, that, which further ex- explains that Jarda had found Bourne and Marie somewhere in Greece in the past when they were still hiding. And Jason got a leg up on Jarda and could have killed him, but instead he and Marie left Jarda alive. And then, so in the script, they actually filmed this, but deleted it. But Jarda asks Bourne, "Why didn't you kill me?" And Bourne replies, "Because she didn't want me to." So in this, even though they didn't show it, and so maybe it could have helped um, audiences understand, like maybe that one line of "You still should have left." Maybe it was confusing for audiences. I remember being a kid and just being a little thrown off by it. So they did film some backstory between the two of them, so it showed that Jarda and Bourne after the events of the first film, had a couple of interactions. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clearing that up, because I always wondered that, too, especially when I gave this a rewatch the other day. I was like, how does he know him? Um, some great scenes that take place also mid-film. I think one of my favorites is when Bourne talks to Pamela Lenny on the phone for the first time, where he's angry as hell he's got a sniper but still like i love how he traces her exactly yeah all all of the the steps he took to trace her to figure out where hotel she was staying in what room she's staying in calling the phone yeah calling the the hotel lobby phone and then following her to her office and then getting on the roof of the opposite building it's just a terrific three minute sequence of showing how good jason is at tracking people and all the ingenious steps he takes to track even someone who's such a high figure in a CIA government position to be able to get her location within a matter of a couple of hours is remarkable. I love and I love it's just like this great, well edited, well shot montage. And Jason, he doesn't know that Treadstone's been shut down. He still doesn't know who runs Treadstone, who ran Treadstone, what's going on with it. He still thinks that they're he thinks that there's Treadstone is coming after him. Well, kind of in a way they are because Abbott, you could say, is Treadstone as much of Treadstone as Jason Bourne. Not is. on the books they are. Yeah, but yeah. exactly, but yeah. still kind of all connected in a way. Yeah. The connection between Abbott and Treadstone as well as with Yuri and Kirill. But Jason thinks that it's Treadstone still coming after him. He's asking Pam Landy, all right, so who's playing the, the missions now? Are you? And Jason wants to meet. He wants to come in. And he tells them there was a girl who ran logistics, have her be at this train station at this time. And I love when Pam's like, what if I can't find her? He's like, should be easy. She's standing right next to you. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I remember it being a kid like, oh, fuck. I think that was in the trailer, too. Yeah, it was great. Great moment. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And everyone's like, oh, shit, where is he? Where is he? But then that that sequence at the train stop, that protest that's going on where he confronts Nikki, he sneaks her into the train station in this room where they can't trace them or record their conversation to get information out of her. Again, same kind of thing. Great tactics of surveillance, surveilling the teams around him because he knows everyone – where their positions are, they where they would no be. Problem, yeah. So we can see everything that's going on using the crowd in the tram to divert the attention and to sneak with Nikki underground and getting as much information from her as possible. But also you see how little Jason actually knows about what's going on in terms of not understanding that tr- she's trying to tell him that Treadstone's been shut down. Like, 
who you are. You've never been to Berlin. You've never worked in Berlin. Yes, I have. Why was I in Berlin? Again, uh, last episode we talked about how their relationship that seemed kind of forced in the third film doesn't make so, so much sense when you watch the first two movies, especially this scene. Especially when she thinks her life's on the line. She she would definitely call back and try to get him to remember. Yeah, even though we know it's ambiguous in the third film and we know that he has no memory even when she is ambiguous about their past, it still doesn't fully work for me when you watch the third film after the, watching the first two but it is what it is it is you know they gotta get kind of a romantic relationship in the third film obviously even though there's no intimacy even the ambiguity of a past relationship is enough for two characters to be more connected for the audience but this scene is really intense because it shows jason on this path of revenge how he'll do almost anything even put a gun to an innocent person's head well not technically innocent because she worked for treadstone yeah but i mean still, she helped assassin to, but to get still, their shit yeah to <laughs> still threaten someone who's unarmed and in a position of inferiority in this situation where he's holding a gun to her head almost you could see like him wanting to pull the trigger to an extent but not wanting to be jason Bourne anymore so you see how far he'll go. Like I even said, just having a sniper rifle when he's talking to to Pam Landy. Yeah. So he's on a different level here. I love. Uh, it's it's not till halfway where we get Carol again, and he uh, he's just in this great like nightclub. It seems like it's like a Saturday night, and then it's like Nicholas winning yeah, reference scene. Yeah, it's great. It's a great <laughs> long take following him out of the club, and then it reveals that it's daytime. It's like probably like eleven in the morning, and then he learns that his attempt on. Jason Bourne's life failed and that Jason Bourne's still alive. And so now he's back on the case. And then we learn that he is actually a member of the Secret Service in Russia. So he's also basically a government official who works on the side for this oligarch as an assassin, kind of like a fixer of uh, as well. So I think the character of Carol is extremely fascinating. My, my one con to the film is I would have liked a little bit more of him and because Carl Urban is a strong performer. And when I learn, when you learn that he is a a, mem- a secret service agent as well, I'm like, wow, that's a really fascinating villain for the for the for the film to have in it. So I would have liked a little bit more of Carol in this film. I agree. I also think I spotted a great, the talented Mr. Ripley reference really? Easter egg in this movie. I'd never picked up on it before. I don't know if it's officially confirmed or it's just a coincidence. The la- the latter seems unlikely to me. But in the talented Mr. Ripley, Dicky. And Dickie, Dickie, Tom Dickie. go to San Remo because he's sick of Mongebello. Mongebello. <laughs> so he wants to move to a new town, obviously, because of the death and suicide of the woman he impregnated. That's the real reason why he's getting rid of getting out of Manji. He goes, he takes Tom to San Remo, their last trip together. And I want to move here. And they go to like that jazz festival, the outdoor jazz concert. Sure, yeah. And that building, it says San Remo Festival on it. And they're in San Remo. And in the Born Supremacy, Born walks into that internet cafe. It's called San Remo. I bet that's an, I bet that's a reference. Yeah. So I wonder if Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon and the producers are referencing the talented Mr. Ripley here. It could be just a coincidence, but I saw that and I paused and I'm like, there's no effing way that's a coincidence. It's got to be an Easter egg. I bet. Someone look it up if you want. I don't know if, I, if I'm just seeing Because, I mean, they what. change storefronts to random names for every movie. Yeah. So why not change it to, like, an Easter egg? I bet that. I bet that's that's there for a reason. Also, internet cafes were once a thing, everyone. They were. <laughs> you could get food, coffee, and go on the internet. This is before you had a phone in your pocket, guys. <laughs> it was a thing. You had to... So, so internet was tough to come by. Yeah, when you watch this movie, everything... Like, him going to internet cafes makes total sense. It's also... Just, it's, it's just the way it could have been... It's the only way it could have been done. They also had good internet. Yeah. You, you would be iffy in your own house with your internet. If if you traveled, you could use internet like internet cafes or like hotels had like internet rooms. Like they had like computer rooms where you can use. They still do. They're just empty now. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, they're <laughs> always empty. There's a ten year old computer and no one's ever it's in like, there. It's a graveyard of computer towers. <laughs> There's our computer room <laughs> with a fax machine. You may need it. <laughs> but yeah, internet cafe is definitely a thing. But I'm telling you, I think it's an Easter egg to a talented Mr. Ripley. I think you're right. I San Remo right. Cafe. That's what he walks into. Mm-hmm. When he, and this is. Which scene is it? It's after something, and he's going to get information on Nesky. On Nesky, yeah. And also, we do get the MacGyver moment where he blows up Jarda's apartment when he, after he kills Jarda. I mean, that fight's so good. It's such a good fight, and the sound design's much better than the first one. I think that maybe they were like, yeah, the first one's a little too over the top. 
and the choreography is excellent. The editing is it's not too jarring. The handheld works really well. And then it's a great strength. Like he strangles him with the the phone cord, and it's just brutal. And it's like, oh fuck, he just choked him out. To, choked him to death. That's crazy. And then he blows it's called up, suffocation. Then he yeah, <laughs> then he blows up the apartment just with a magazine, a toaster oven, and by cutting the, by uh, opening up the gas line. It's terrific. I the love Gruber! it. McGruber. <laughs> Abbott's it. also great in this in this movie too. Yeah, Brian Cox role, got much more. Yeah, a lot more to do. Really complex character as well, who goes through so many ups and downs because this is a character who is taking such high risks and high gambles where it's life and death for him every day if anyone finds out too much information, which obviously proves to be true when Bourne sets him up to confess unbeknownst to him on a tape recorder, which prompts him to eventually kill himself so that he wouldn't have to live with being prosecuted. I thought he was going to kill Pamela. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, I was like, no, Pamela, don't kill her. Pam. Pam. Is it, is Pam? it two M's? Pam, no, I think I, it's a Pam with an N, silent N. Now the tuxedo's Pam. fucked up. Pam. But, but Abbott gets his hand dirty in this movie as well. Danny, who's working for, was working for the CIA in the first film and also in this movie, kind of Abbott's, one he, of his right-hand men. He was Conklin's, like, right-hand, and now he's Abbott's yeah. right-hand. So he is a clever guy, and he takes Abbott down secretly because he thinks him and Abbott are, they trust each other, they've known each other longer. They don't They're, trust Pamela. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's where we say Pamela. It's just <laughs> Pam. <laughs> Pamela Landy. Yeah, no, no. Like that said once, everyone calls her Pam. No, I think uh, I think she's called Pamela more Pam than once. Pam Landy, <laughs> maybe more than once. It's Pamela, I call her Pam though. You but... call her whatever you want. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> he takes he takes Abbott down to that circuit breaker or whatever it was that Carol blew up when he took out the two guys during the Nesky Files deal after before he killed them, and Danny's trying to show to Abbott like, Bourne's an experienced guy. Why would he? set these charges here and make this one not go off, also leave a fingerprint. It doesn't make any sense. And also sense. that line led to nothing. It was it's, a backup yeah, breaker. It's just a diversion. Yeah. It's just to it's just to cover up his tracks. why someone who's as skilled and as knowledgeable as Jason Bourne, why would he make a mistake like this? If you're good enough to get in here and use this gear, you're good enough to know that this wouldn't that this You don't need work. it. Yeah. You don't need it. Yeah. You don't need any yeah. of this. It's just it's just BS. It's just a reason to leave that fingerprint. Show me again. Yeah. Oh dang, yeah. Show me one more time. Chokes chokes him and no, stabs, stabs him out. Stabs him in. Chokes and stabs. Stab. Choke let stab. Me, let me finish the sentence. Choke stab. There's <laughs> <laughs> the stealth kill from Less of Us. <laughs> Gotta get those clickers, bro. So Abbott here, he's getting his hands dirty because like I said, every day is more and more life or death with the gamble he's been taking in the last 10 20 years to get rich quick to embezzle money to work with yuri and there's a boiling point if he, if anyone finds out too much information it's either him or them he's gonna start taking them out and pam landy like you said you thought he was gonna take her out i thought he was gonna kill pamela as well <laughs> <laughs> see i'm right people do say pamela but jason's so clever by framing abbott with the tape recording device not knowing that it, he's being recorded he thinking thought it was it's the tip a gun. of the gun yeah, yeah he thinks it's a gun he confesses everything to jason Bourne. Do it, do it, kill me, kill me. Because he knows Jason's not going to kill him. He knows it. So he's just saying all this to posture, in my opinion. I think that he will, I think that, I think he thought Jason would have killed him. Possibly. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I think he's just BS. I think he's just bluffing. Yeah. Um, But that tape recorder is all that Jason needed to get to somebody. That's all he needed to do to cause Abbott to take his own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he basically showed the, he showed evidence of the conspiracy. So he's a good, he's a good guy. <laughs> and he sends that tape eventually to Pamela Landy. And then we get the Berlin foot chase. Woo! Oh my god, the Berlin foot chase is great because... Well, actually, can we talk about what, what happens before that? Hey, so why absolutely. why does he go to Berlin? Why does he go to the Brecker Hotel? Well, there's um, there's two foot chases. So I'm, I'm not talking about the one before Carol shows up, but the other Berlin foot chase at night. Okay, okay. Which is fantastic where he evades the cops by going under the bridge. Yeah, but that's that's the opening of this. You're right, you're right. Yeah, you're so right, yeah, yeah. let's talk about why he's in Berlin. So he goes to Berlin because he's starting to put the pieces of that memory together, connecting it with Nesky somehow, the Brecker Hotel. There's something there, this room, 645. So he goes to the Brecker Hotel. This is a mistake that Jason's made, the most, the number one, the only mistake he's really made using that passport, which then immediately after he shows it to them, and it checks flagged, in. Yeah. It, we get doesn't get no. It doesn't get flagged. They get a printout of a police file of someone to look for, someone who's wanted. Yeah. Of Jason's face, like obviously this guy just walked in. 
He's in room 644 next to 645 because it was occupied. But Jason's trying to retrace the steps of his memory from that night in Berlin and how it ties into his past and how it ties into the present of what's happening in Berlin as well. And now as soon as he's in there, he's remembering everything. He's remembering that it wasn't just it was a hit that turned into a murder suicide. I'm the one that killed Nasky. I'm the one that killed his wife and made it seem like his wife killed him, then committed suicide. And what it eventually by the third act of the film, when he goes to confess, what it does to the daughter, like it changes things, knowing that your mother didn't kill your father and knowing your mother didn't kill herself. It changes things, doesn't it? It changes her entire life, I'm sure. That knowledge. And so then the Berlin foot chase ensues where SWAT comes and they go into 644, which he's not in there. He's in 645 because he broke in because he needed to see the, that room again. And then the Berlin foot chase he does, happens. Yeah, he does some more wall scaling, which is terrific. But the, the Berlin foot chase at night is so well choreographed and it's terrific. And I love the cinematography and the music just, just amps you up. But this is a situation where you're like, how is he going to get out of this? Because... Yeah, he got out of the hotel, but like the the entire city's after him in all directions, and he manages to evade police brilliantly by on on top of the bridge. This train, the train's on top of the bridge. And he realizes he can't get out through the train system because the cops will get on the train too. So he goes underneath the bridge, and then he hops onto the boat, and then he takes this like I don't know what you call it, this giant pick basically to climb back on on top of the undercarriage of the bridge. And hide there while police think that he's on the boat. He hops back on the train, gets away scot-free. It was so brilliant in an ingenious way to evade police. And I, it was just so good. And basically, chronologically, what's happening next in the film after this great Berlin foot chase, we have the great Moscow wind-up car chase. And now why is Bourne going to Moscow? He's had Abbott give that confession accidentally, which forced him to kill himself. He's also, like we said, escaped from Berlin. And now Pan Landy has all the fuel and weaponry she needs to take down Treadstone and just kind of end the corruption that's going on and then eventually Blackbriar. But Bourne's goal now is to go to Moscow. He's going to Moscow to find Nesky's daughter and confess to her what happened. And, you know, he's trying to find her information. He goes to her old apartment. The taxi takes a cab to get to her residence. And that's where... He gets discovered again, and that's where Kirill is sent by Yuri again because, like we said earlier at, at the nightclub, he said, uh, you told me I, I had a month off, and you told me Jason Bourne was dead. Dun, dun, dun. So they're all tracking him back to Moscow, and this is why he's in Moscow. And I love – he's so smart. The cabbie drives off. He's like, oh, shit, they know I'm here. That, that's how he, – like, he doesn't need any more information. He knows that he has to start running right here. This wind-up chase with Kirill is fantastic because – Kirill shows that he's on a different level from other officers as well. He's not quite, I would say, Jason Bourne, but he's pretty damn close to being like the same caliber of an agent as Jason Bourne. That's why he's able to track Bourne. That's why he's able to actually mortally wound Bourne in a way. He shoots right through his shoulder. I love the sequence of Jason getting shot and then Kirill getting arrested for a moment before showing his Secret Service badge. And then the foot chase, Jason Bourne quickly gets into a market to get some things to work on his wound. He gets some alcohol and some some towels to to work on that wound. And yeah, then work on that work wound. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. But then Kirill also very instinctual, very very perceptive. He he immediately once he hears hears a sound of kind of some kind of scream or shriek, he knows it's Bourne. So he goes into the market as well. And then j this chase sequence. The car chase of Kirill and Bourne, as well as the other authority cars that are after him. And then I also love when they call in, like, the Secret Service cars. Those black cars come out. The high pursuit. Yeah, like, oh, shit, let's go. This, I think, is the best chase of the franchise. All the films. I think that this Moscow chase is, hands down, the best car chase. It might be. It's one of the best car chases in general in history of cinema. But also, it might be the best foot chase car chase. Yeah, Because transition. we have both. Yeah. So it's both a foot chase than car chase. So I think... It might be the best foot chase car chase of all time. I don't think it can beat the Tangiers foot chase. No, but I mean when you combine them both. Okay. That's what yeah. I mean. Oh, when it's one sequence? Like foot chase to car chase. Like it, yeah, it's I, done I, plenty of times in yeah, movies, yeah, but I yeah. think this might be the best one. Yeah, absolutely. And what I love about this chase is the taxi that Jason takes on. It gets fucked up. Yeah, oh my dude. god. It's I love how it's like showing like so many movies, like the car chase the cars barely take much damage and they keep doing Couple all this. Dents here and there. But his this car gets mangled and torn up and it just gets destroyed. Shock after shock. Like it just keeps slamming into things. 
but it's still just barely, barely going on. I love that attention to detail of like, let's just fucking destroy this thing while he's driving it. Carol's using that G wagon that he yeah. stole, and again, some of the more some of the practical filmmaking in this chase sequence is incredible. Specifically, that tunnel where these oh my cars God. are smashing into each other at pretty decent speeds. Obviously, when you're watching a movie, they're driving not 100 miles per hour. But, like, these cars are slamming into each other, skidding out, avoiding each other. And then we have, like, the great bullet fight between them trying to shoot the other's tires out in the windows. And it's incredible. And then Jason Bourne takes out Carol's tire and then cleverly reverses and is able to get the perpendicular position, T-bone position, on his SUV and slide him up onto a ramp and smash into him and take him out. Doesn't kill him, but doesn't pull the trigger. Dude, when I whenever I've seen this movie like probably twenty times, and whenever I see the cars just crashing into each other in that tunnel, like the cars in the background, I'm always like, I and I the other night I was like, holy fuck! Like I've seen it so many times, and it's still I get this crazy reaction to like the practical destruction and chaos going on. It's insane. Do you think that Carol dies in this car crash, or do you think that Bourne just lets him survive and walks away? I think he survives. It's it's tough to tell because I think he just like lays down like to pass out. It's yeah, that's that's usually what I think, but there's still it's still possible that he died because we don't see him after this moment. So it's possible that he he died in this car crash. Well, because they they end the film like immediately after this. So I don't think there's any reason to show Kirill and it's not his story. So I don't think it's necessary to include what like the aftermath. I don't want to see Kirill in the hospital. Yeah. But also no, or like track him down again. Yeah. But oh, like in the in future movies. Yeah. Well, it's not his business anymore. Yeah. Once it's Jason Bourne. Now that his boss is dead, like he has no reason to chase down Jason. Probably Bourne. in prison. Yeah. So I, I doubt that Carol's story has any significance on on yeah. Jason's plot at all. If he survived, he's in. Is he probably in jail? Yeah. It because would be. Imagine they if, discovered he was a corrupt. Imagine agent. if they did a fifth, a fifth Jason Bourne. He was the villain again. That would be. I would see that. That would see that. Too. It would be a sixth Jason Bourne movie. <laughs> sixth. Well, Jason Bourne movie, not yeah. Bourne movie. Yeah, J- yeah, Jason Bourne movie. Not the drug-altering, superhuman Jason Bourne legacy. <laughs> spin-off. This is a spin-off. We it's... take this pill, it makes us superhuman. Yeah. Oh, my God. If we don't take it every two weeks, we get really dizzy. We get a bad headache. <laughs> <laughs> my vision blurs up. No, I, I think they die if they don't take oh, yeah, it yeah, yeah, or yeah. something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an incredible climax to this movie, and... You know, it wraps it up with a bow, all the corruption that's happening with Pam Landy solving that. But Jason in this car wreck in the scene, it shows so much growth for the character again. Even though he's so angry at the world, he wants to take out everybody, especially this person. This is the guy who killed Marie. Yeah. He doesn't kill him. He doesn't kill Kirill when he has every right to, and you know he wants to, but because he's changed so much as a character, again, this amnesia ridden hitman assassin who gets a reset on his brain on life and hates what he's become, even at the point where he gets to kill his girlfriend's killer, he doesn't do it. He walks away. I love it. I love it. That's why I think that Carol doesn't die for sure. Yeah. I think that's like, there's no point in having that spare sparing moment if he doesn't survive. You and know what I mean, I love how the end of this movie, he's still covered in blood. He goes to see Nesky's daughter. And obviously it's the great opening to the third film is what happens after he sees Nesky's Well, I'm sorry. Daughter. We forgot to mention Daniel Bruhl has a quick scene in this okay. film Marie's as, brother. as Marie's brother. And he he basically tells her him that Marie's dead yeah. and that he's going to go after the people that caused it. That's a great little scene in the first act of the film. It's like uh, Sullivan and the Depay. like, I'm going to find him and I'm going to kill him. <laughs> 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 what are you going to do when you find the rat? I'm going to find him. I'm going to kill him. Sorry, Bill. Sorry, Bill. This computer is getting all bluey on me. <laughs> yeah, great job, Trooper. But uh, uh, the supremacy, this this uh, confession scene, it's so moving and it's very heart, heart-wrenching heart and it, it gets me choked up every time I see it. And Damon and the young actress he performs with in this scene do a magnificent job. It's so emotional. And it's it was it's unexpected how emotional it is. And I think Damon does just a terrific acting in that. It shows his his real talent as an actor to be and to put that in an um, action movie of this scale you don't see that very often and and you'll see them tr- you'll see movies try it but not really pull it off and make it work but it really does hit those beats really well in that scene it's so powerful you know jason now that he fully remembers what happened in berlin on that off the books job with conklin he knows that now I was just supposed to take out the father, but now I had to turn into a, a murder-suicide when the mother was there. And she, he confesses everything to her. You know, your mother wasn't supposed to be there. This is what I did. This was my job. She complicated things, and then he had to turn into a murder-suicide. I killed them. And 
he's doing this because he's trying to make her life somewhat more meaningful where imagine growing up your entire life thinking that your mother killed your father and then killed herself let alone both your parents dying is a tragic event enough but let it but finding out that it was a murder suicide yeah how much would your life change 10 years later to find out that they were happy together and there was no murder suicide and they were assassinated because of politics how much of an impact would that have on your life now? And I'm sure it changed her life trajectory completely. Yeah, he says that changes things, that knowledge. And yeah. He, yeah, and he even looks to that photo. He's like, does that that photo mean a lot to you? And she says, it's just a picture because I'm just, sure- Just a picture. Every time she looks at it, she thinks of nothing but pain Yeah, because of what she thought her mother did, but now finds out that it never happened and that they loved each other and they loved her. Yeah, and then what um Paul Greengrass what makes him a really special filmmaker is right after this we just get we literally get like almost a minute of Jason just walking away from the apartment building and he's just walking in like the courtyard of there's multiple buildings of this apartment complex and beautiful it's beautiful blue cool um dusk lighting and then all the yellow lights of the apartment windows are lit up and it's just really beautiful. And he shoots it, it's just minimalist, just walking with Jason Bourne, and then he cuts to a super wide of the entire location. That was actually the original ending of the film. And I actually prefer that to ending, because the, they, what they did was that, that was the ending. It was supposed to cut to credits then, and then they got bad reactions from audiences. So just less than a month before the film's release, they filmed that Pamela Landy, Jason Bourne rooftop sequence uh, that ends the film in a more like of a high note with some more energy and just some, like it's more upbeat. So Hollywood happy ending. Hollywood happy ending. So they put that in last minute. I actually prefer it if they had ended it right here after the confession to the daughter. And it's such a great uh, trajectory and transformation for the character of his growth, of him showing his humanity, humility, and dealing with the grief and regret of who he was and trying to make sense of his life going forward. I think it's, it would it would have been, in my opinion, it was the perfect way to end the film. It connects to the opening of Ultimatum better yeah. because the opening of Ultimatum is brilliant because it's the exact events after he leaves Nesky's daughter's apartment. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense how supremacy ends. Yeah, but I love the story of the opening of Ultimatum, which we'll get into next episode because he's still covered in blood. He's got glass on him. He had just left the apartment. Basically, yeah. it's how he escaped from Moscow. Mm -hmm. it's so awesome. But this movie is incredible. But he ends with Pam Landy calling her... And she tells him his real name, David Webb, Nixon, Missouri. It's a That's a boring name. From. What a boring name. <laughs> I think it's a cool name. David Webb. What's wrong with that? I'm just kidding. You're, you're a hater. It's only 10 letters in total. David Smith would be a boring name. I'm sorry if someone's named David Smith listening. It's not a boring <laughs> name at all. It's just a common name, not boring. Is anyone named David Smith? I don't know. It's too, it's too common of two names. Two common names. To David just Webb. Together. That's pretty unique. David Webb. Shut up. Double right. Webb. Right. W, double B. <laughs> we find out who... He is. He finds his, out his real name. And I, I love his reaction to it. It's just like he's taken aback. And uh, he just tells Pam to get some rest. You look tired. You look tired. Don't ever tell that to a woman. Don't ever... <laughs> <laughs> I look tired? What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> oh, so I look like shit, huh? <laughs> he's going to get his uh, social skills back. <laughs> canceled. Jason Bourne, canceled. <laughs> Kills 50 people, but he gets canceled for that. <laughs> but man, what an incredible movie Born Supremacy is. It might be my favorite of the trilogy. It's a great pick. It's still hard to pick because they're all pretty unique. Yeah. And, and like we've said, they have different themes. They have different approaches. They're telling different stories. Uh, and they all, I mean, they're all special for their own reasons. Yeah. But I think the foot car chase in Moscow is I mean, Berlin, you know, the Moscow one, the also, but, but the Berlin one's, one's incredible too, but the Moscow foot to car chase is sensational filmmaking. And I would say for car chases, it's it's up there for all timers for car chases, the the Moscow windup. It's, it's really incredible. It is. All right. Got anything else? I love this movie. Five out of five stars on Letterboxd. I rated it. Way to go, man. Proud of you. Thank uh, you. Because uh, I, I feel like it gets better the more years go on. Don't you think? I think so too. And like... The more I watch like modern action movies, there are some really great ones still, but the majority of them, like I'd rather watch this ten, ten times out of ten. Like I'll choose this every time. Bring back the great action protagonists, please, Hollywood. Yeah, we miss them. Yeah, I, I miss I miss, I miss the badass. So I miss the uh, no one-liners because now they're always just the butt of jokes and 
never taken seriously and kind of just like walked all over. And it's like, uh, this is like the kind of antihero Hollywood Hollywood antihero that I really like and that we grew up with. And audiences miss. They yeah, really do. They do, yeah. I miss it. All right. Thanks so much for tuning into our episode of The Born Supremacy. Make sure to tune into the previous episode for our breakdown of The Born Identity. And next episode will be The Born Ultimatum. This is Born Week at Born Raiders Week. of the Lost Podcast. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Thank you so much for everybody tuning in around the world and supporting our show. Get some sleep, James. You look tired. I look tired? <laughs> Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button as well. Notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.